As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. And today we're remembering one of the world's favourite anti-theists, I think, and we're asking, was Christopher Hitchens right about religion? It was over four years ago now that Christopher Hitchens lost a battle with cancer, uh, but during his life he was one of the leading lights of the so-called New Atheist movement and probably one of its most eloquent writers and speakers. His book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, became a bestseller around the world, around the same time as books such as The God Delusion and Letter to a Christian Nation by fellow co-atheists were also becoming popular. Well, today we're going to be discussing his legacy with three guests. Peter Harris is a Christian currently researching a PhD on Christopher Hitchens' criticisms of religion. Ed Turner is a lawyer and atheist blogger whose own anti-theism was heavily influenced by Christopher Hitchens. And finally, Peter Hitchens, the brother of Christopher, joins us by phone. Peter, as a Christian believer, of course, had a very different perspective to his brother, and he'll be talking about that in the course of today's programme. Um, very warm welcome to you all, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you for joining me Thanks on today's programme. Um, before we come to Peter and Ed, uh, Peter Harris, we're going to have two Peters, <laughs> and it's going to be confusing. <laughs> yes. um, but Peter, um, you, you were the one who suggested perhaps uh, doing this topic, because yes. you, you're actually unusually doing a, a PhD in this I area. Yes. Um, what, what prompted you to do that? Well, I was going through a period of doubt in my life about my Christian faith probably about eight years ago, and I'd read Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion um, and came across Christopher Hitchens as well and initially was bowled over by this man's public persona and uh, began to read his books as well um, and decided that he would make a very good object of study. Um, however, what I would say is that the longer I've read his stuff, um, the more the errors and the weaknesses in his arguments become more apparent. Um, but in a sense, doing a PhD, you don't simply take an adversarial position with your object of study. I'm also an expositor as well. So one of the chapters that I 
I've put into my PhD is really to explain what exactly was his anti-theism. So obviously defining it first before then actually ranging a series of arguments against it. Hopefully arguments that other people have not yet used because that's the whole aim of a, of a PhD. So I, I'm fascinated by Christopher Hitchens as a thinker, as a writer. Um, not as impressed as I am fascinated. Okay, well, we'll, we'll come to some of the areas that you're tackling yes. in that work uh, shortly. Ed, um, you have never written a PhD on Christopher Hitchens, <laughs> but you, you certainly have had a, a long-time interest in him. He probably is and was your favourite of the, of yeah, the atheist was, writers. Yeah. Um, what, what, is a mortal song. What, uh. <laughs> what, what particularly attracted you? to hitch uh, well i read the god delusion first by dawkins um in 2007 when i was away traveling i came across hitchens's book i think a bo- i saw it in a bookshop and obviously the title was very very provocative but i didn't actually buy it and i um i uh i first of all saw a few of his debates um on that were posted on the dawkins website and particularly his debates against alistair mcgrath i was just absolutely over by his uh, directness, his you know acid wit, his you know how uh, you know Dawkins is is accused of being shrill and strident. I mean Hitchens just gives both barrels and then reloads and gives both barrels again and again and again and again. And he was just so eloquent. So I read God is not great, and then I read um, you know his articles. I mean he he wrote. I think mo- more than most people have read in their lives. He, he was prolific. He was very prolific. Yeah, mm. yeah. So you know, I read his collections of essays of love, poverty, and war, and you know, obviously, you know, his works against politicians, people like Henry Kissinger and, and the Clintons as well. I mean, he just uh, he, he was he was just such a sniper of a writer. I mean, I, I don't know. Lots of people have have talked about him being a rhetorician, yes. and um, God is not great was more a um, what's the word? If if it's it, rather than an argument, it's it's more of a. It uh, is. Polemic. A polemic. That's yeah. the word I'm searching for. Um, would you agree with that yourself, Peter? Yeah, well, God is Not Great is a book that I think tries to satisfy two types of audience. One is the, the popular audience, um, which, of course, he would appeal to as a journalist. Um, but also it does try to be academic as well. So it, it tries to suit both audiences. I don't think it's fully successful in being an academic text, partly because of the, the lack of footnoting at the end, which I think he was criticised before for. Um, but it certainly is a, a very important contribution to, to the new atheists, and I would agree with Ed that I find Christopher mm. Hitchens probably the most easy to listen to and read among the new atheists. Indeed. It, it was always an experience to listen to him Absolutely. as well as to read him, and we will hear from him in the course of today's programme. I've got a bit, bit of audio lined up just to give a sense of uh, a reminder of, of the, uh, the brilliant uh, speaker that he was. Um, also joining us on the line is Peter Hitchens. So Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, not, not an easy thing, in a sense, to, to do a retrospective on someone who is obviously a family member. Um, tell us, though, how did you end up taking such very different paths, in, in a nutshell, in terms of your separate beliefs? Two different people. Mm. Uh, why shouldn't we? Mm. Why would you expect, and from what everything we know about families and brothers, why would you expect two brothers to take the same path? What would what would be surprising about? I, I suppose might one might expect <clears throat> if two two brothers with similar upbringing, similar backgrounds, there might be some way in which you might expect a a similar outlook to develop. But obviously, say well, every, everyone. Why? I mean, if people's outlooks develop, I mean, you could be, we could to people who weren't very used to our voices, we could mm. impersonate each other on the telephone because people would <laughs> one was the other. 
Did, uh, did you carry out such pranks? There are other mannerisms then? which we probably have in common, which you could attribute to, mm. to upbringing and, uh, and having the same parents. But otherwise, individuals develop. Mm. I, look, I, my experience of life is different from his. I'm a different mm. sort of person from him. I'm, mm. I'm constitutionally uh, Puritan, and he, I, I think I could say without fear of contradiction, wasn't. Mm. Uh, and I, no, we had... No, we, 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 we don't actually, there are, there are family similarities. We don't look the same. We mm. were born two and a half years apart. I, I've, my own view is that I, I've had different, in my view, um, more education experiences in life than, than he did, and therefore I've, I, I understand some things better than he did. But that's, that, that, I would say that, wouldn't I? But we're different. <laughs> yeah, of moment, course. From the moment you start growing up, you have uh, Im- immense amounts of different experiences, yeah. even, if, even if you're twins. Which we certainly were not. Yes. I mean, you did have a period of atheism yourself. Um, oh, definitely, yes. So, in that I sense, think, I think most, I think most uh, Western people in this age did or mm. do. It's not. It, it's. I don't count that as. Being, it, I, I, I learned to swim as well, and all kinds of things, and I, I did stupid things in my teenage years. But these are things which people do. They're not. They're not starting. The, the, what I find interesting is that the old process where people used to have uh, childish adolescent views in their adolescence and then adult views in adulthood has stopped and people continue having childish adolescent views up until the day they die. Uh, I, I'm tired of being asked why I, why I have done what everybody throughout every generation of history until this <laughs> one has done and grown up. Right. Uh, the interesting thing is why so many people have not grown up in later life. It's an interesting perspective. Um, why then, if you could hazard a guess, did um, your brother develop such an animosity towards religion? He didn't just call himself an atheist, he called himself an anti-theist. Well, because he enjoyed it, mm-hmm. uh, which was a huge uh, <laughs> a huge impulse on his part. He, he liked to have fun. He loved yeah. He loved debate. He enjoyed disagreeing with people, and when they disagreed with him, he enjoyed telling them they were wrong. <laughs> I have that characteristic. Yes, I, I was saying there are some shared characteristics. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't dispute that. It's, it, it, it is fun. Arguing is one of the is, is one of the great pleasures. Uh, I think that it's it, it's a straightforward point that comes in your life, and it, I've said it over and over again uh, that there is a reason why people choose uh, to, to to believe that there is no God. Uh, unusually. Uh, among atheists, the American philosopher Thomas Nagel concedes this blatantly obvious point. But almost every other atheist I've ever discussed was, "Oh no, no, there's no motive in this. I just can't believe in it. It's not possible." As if, uh, as if belief was some kind of mystical thing over which the human mind had no control. It's perfectly obvious. All of us in all in, in our lives believe what we want to believe, especially about things where there is no no knowledge which can which can decide for mm. us what we have to believe. Uh, we, we therefore have a choice. So why would you want to choose a totally chaotic, random universe, a gigantic cosmic car crash, in which nothing had any significance beyond its immediate effects, and your your worldly life had no consequences after you were dead? Why would anybody choose that? Well, the answer is so blazingly obvious, it's barely worth asking the question. It's the reason why people are atheists. They don't want those consequences. They don't want their actions to have any significance. They don't particularly want justice for themselves in the universe, so they can't seek it for others. It's, it, it's just, it, it's been the case since people started saying, as if it were tremendously brave, there is no God about 10,000 years ago. It's nothing new. Mm. I'm amazed at the way in which it's treated as some kind of fascinating intellectual novelty, when it's, the, it's absolutely nothing of the kind. The Bible is full of 
of, of, of people being described as, as, as being godless or, or indeed roaming after pagan de- deities, which are very much the same as the things which atheists were. Well, What's so new about this? What's so exciting? What's so refreshing? I can't see it. Well, it's perhaps so. Um, he, he was someone who had many interests, um, but I guess... Well, yeah, I mean, I, this thing which always absolutely astonishes me <laughs> in this conversation is that the, the people who, who love him for being against God and in favor of, of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, uh, which is, of course, the fundamental reason why people are against God, because they think God is against sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The, all these people who revere him for that are also people who uh, absolutely loathe the position that he took on the war in Iraq. Mm. But they give him a free pass on the war in Iraq, where he advocated policies which led to the bombing of civilians in their homes and the destruction of an, of an entire country and actually resulted in the, the, the end of peace in the Middle East and the, the awful hellish arrangements we have there now. But they don't care about that. Uh, they, they, they put his atheism way among us. I'm a terrible and ter- terrific admirer of your brother's history because of his... And I say, well, what about... Yes. Right? Well, I say, well, yes, that was wrong, but uh, <laughs> I, it, it doesn't really seem to register. Yeah. The real thing that matters is his advocacy of unfettered hedonism, which is what atheism... Well, is. We, we will get really, to... They don't care about... Although they claim to care about all those... All those Right. We'll see what Ed has... has They don't actually care about it at all. What they care about is what everybody always cares about all the time, fundamentally, is themselves. And atheism is the worship of the self. And that's... uh, And he was very good at it, in in a sort of dismissive way. And you would expect, wouldn't you, an advocate of self-worship to be dismissive and arrogant towards those who disagree with it, because that would kind of fit. Well, we will see what Ed has to say in response uh, to that, and uh, Peter as well. Thank you for joining us on the programme today, Peter. Really appreciate your input on this from a personal level. Uh, We're remembering the world's favourite anti-theist, I think he probably was anyway, uh, Christopher Hitchens. Was he right about religion? Uh, Of course, it was uh, over four years now since he passed away, but um, his book, God is Not Great, really uh, set the scene for much of the new atheism, and uh, we're going to be hearing, in his own words, uh, some of what he had to say about that in a short moment's time. This is Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking every Saturday afternoon with me, Justin Brierley. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, today on the programme, we're remembering the world's favourite anti-theist. Was Christopher Hitchens right about religion? My guests, Peter Harris, Ed Turner and Peter Hitchens, the brother of Christopher, uh, joining me for today's show. So why don't we hear Christopher Hitchens himself on one of the reasons he believed religion poisons everything? The wish to be slaves. The wish to be told what to do. Now, just as we all like to think, and we live under written documents and proclamations that encourage us to think that it is our birthright and our, our, our most precious need to be free, to be liberated, to be untrammeled. So we also know that, unfortunately, the, the innate in people is the servile, is the wish to be told what to do, is the adoration for strong and brutal and cruel uh, leaders. That uh, This other baser element of the human makeup has to be accounted for and gives us a great deal of trouble around the world as we speak. Religion, in my view, is a reification, a distillation of this wish to be a serf, to be a slave. Ask yourself if you really wish it was true that there was a celestial dictatorship that watched over you from the moment you were born, actually the moment you were conceived, all through life, night and day, knew your thoughts, waking and sleeping. Uh, could, could in fact convict you of thought crime. The absolute, uh, the absolute definition of a, of a dictatorship can convict you for what you think 
and what you privately want, what you're talking about to yourself, that monitors you like this under permanent surveillance control and supervision and doesn't even let go of you when you're dead because that's when the real fun begins. <laughs> now, my question is this. I, my question to you is this. Who wishes that that were true? Who wants to lead the life of a serf in a celestial North Korea? I've been to North Korea. I'm one of the very few writers who has. I, I'm indeed the, the only writer who's been to all three axes of evil countries, Iran, Iraq, and, and, and North Korea. And I can tell you, North Korea is the most religious state I've ever been to. I used to wonder when I was a kid, what would it be like praising God and thanking him all day and all night? Well, now I know. Because North Korea is a completely worshipful state. It's set up only to do that for adoration. And it's only one short of a trinity. There you go. A little bit of Christopher Hitchens uh, speaking and, and likening God to a celestial North Korean dictator. Um, perhaps I'll come back to you, Peter, and then Ed for some reflections on this. Um, what, what did you make of these kinds of themes that uh, Hitchens developed in his anti-theistic work? Well, the statement that we've just heard from, from Christopher Hitchens is, is a very famous um, series of ideas. We, you know, we hear these ideas very often from him. Um, and I would say that actually it's his anti-totalitarianism, his, his libertarianism. When I say libertarianism, I don't mean to say that anything goes. I mean, I think um, Christopher Hitchens had a very strong moral code. Um, but his hatred for all things absolute, um, political absolutes in particular, um, leads him to his anti-theism because, of course, he conceives God as being uh, a totalitarian. Um, and I think this is a flaw. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the, the Christian God, the Christian God is a trinity. So at the heart of the concept of the Christian God is relationship. Um, we also talk about God as the God of love um, and also God as the guarantee of free choice because in a material universe it's very hard to see where one might get the possibility of, of free will. Um, and one thing that has always struck me is that if God is, is such a totalitarian, um, why is there so much disobedience and rebellion, even among his own children? Mm. Um, surely if, you know, the nature of the totalitarian state is actually to deal with, with rebellion at its source. Um, and yet we see people um, ignoring what God wants them to do, and, and so on and so on. But one thing I do advance in my uh, dissertation is the idea that God himself is a victim of totalitarianism. Um, now, I don't expect Ed to accept this proposition, but if we, if we say that Christ is the Son of God and we look at his life in the Gospels, we see him actually the victim of three absolutisms, the Herodian absolutism, the attempt on his life as a child by Herod the Great, um, the absolutism of Jewish theocracy, um, which sets him up for his death, and, of course, the absolutism of Roman law. Mm. Um, so Christ actually suffers totalitarian or absolute um, persecution. I would want to suggest an alternative totalitarian within this universe, and that's the law of sin. Um, people, people feeling almost compelled to do wrong things, unable to resist doing wrong things. I think that's the totalitarian. And, and was Hitchens at some level guilty of a sort of um, naive optimism that if we ditch God, we'll, we'll all be happier and in a secular society? No, I don't think he ever thought that. Um, John Lennox, in his book, um, why the, Gunning for God, Why the Atheists Are Wrong, actually re refers to a conversation he had with, with Christopher Hitchens, in which Christopher Hitchens said that humanity is, you know, by its own lights, very evil indeed. Mm. Um, he, he didn't share that, the optimism you find in some of the writers who seem to think that if you ditch religion, we'll, we'll all be much happier. I think he, 
I think he believed that we would be happier, but I don't think he ever believed that religion would go away. No. That's one of the main differences between him and the other new atheists. Um, he, his argument is actually an evolutionary one. Uh, it's not a cultural one. He says that religion is actually innate to us. And, and it won't go away for the foreseeable future. Mm. So what do you do with it? Well, he argued that you actually tame it um, within a secular society. So religion becomes a practice within the province mm. of people's personal lives and you hedge around it laws. And so in a sense, you, you, you tame this, this yes. potential beast. You neuter the, yeah. the thing. Interesting perspectives there. Um, Ed, has, has Hitchens' famous uh, idea, this theme of God as a celestial dictator, been one that's been a powerful one? for you i think it's a fascinating argument um i actually it's one of the few arguments where i sort of almost disagreed with him i think maybe he put too much thought in this um into it because it actually plays to um peter hitchens's argument that people want to be atheists and people want to believe you know what they want to believe they don't want to be under such a yeah, supreme yeah, authority exa- exactly yeah. yeah now i suppose if you you know you lie all day in a bath and you think about these things then yes i'm glad that hitler didn't win the second world war i'm glad that stalinism did not expand you know beyond the berlin wall i'm glad that i don't live in north korea you know there but for the grace of god goes some other poor unfortunate person yes um but yeah i think it's i i wouldn't mind either way i would accept it if there was if there was actually some evidence for it i would actually accept it and you, you don't personally have an a problem then um, in principle with the idea of a divine judge a divine sort of um person who who inevitably you are answerable to well i think it's a bit of a sinister idea yes but there's um it's i'm not saying it's attractive to me i can understand i do sympathize with the you know the religious um, mentality in its desire to believe that our action, our thoughts and actions do have some kind of cosmic significance and that life ultimately has some kind of purpose and meaning and as a way of getting through, you know, what is a very cruel and unforgiving world at times. I can understand that. Um, I can't bring myself to believe it because there's just absolutely no evidence for us at all and people... The only evidence that I've heard, the only arguments that I've heard, just amounts to wishful thinking. And I, I mean, that was what Christopher Hitchens often said. There's not a shred of evidence. Mm. There's not, uh, you know, and, and if you just give me some of that and so on. And we'll, perhaps we'll come to that as well, because um, because I think that there are those who have said, actually, in the end, he was given a good amount of evidence and maybe he should have changed his 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 rhetoric on that, at least. Um, Peter, you, 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 I'm sure you came across this a number of times, the, the divine... Uh, dictator argument. What what's your response to it? Which are you asking me? Yes, you, Peter Hitchens. Two Peters, you have to say. Right? <laughs> I will. I'll know. distinguish my Peters. Oh, I think it's the most on. complete twaddle. Uh, one only needs to consider the the voluntary nature of belief and the the, the great first collect at morning prayer in the 1662 prayer book. Oh God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom. Uh, materialists always used to insist, when there still were Marxist materialists among us, that freedom was the knowledge of necessity. Uh, in, in the Christian view, freedom is, is the knowledge and understanding of the, law of the laws given to us by God, by which we should live well and aim to return his love. And that's, uh, that is not a dictatorship. And it's, just, of course, absurd to condemn as a dictator a God who in his time on earth submitted to the most grotesque 
dictatorial show trial and experienced firsthand the, 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 the torture and, uh, and, and prejudice and presumption of guilt which such regimes impose upon those who stand up against them. I can't think of any more ridiculous to say, but it appeals to the kind of adolescent audiences to which he spoke and who bought his book because these people, particularly in the United States, had spent all their lives being brought up in Christian homes with Christian pastors and being told the Christian message was true, and they'd arrived at a point in their lives where this contradicted with their desire to have promiscuous sex and take drugs. And they really, really relished having an articulate, Oxford-educated smoothie uh, humorously <laughs> defending this position. Uh, but celestial dictator, what a lot of, well, what a lot of rubbish. I also have been to North Korea and Iran, and, 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 and indeed the post-Hitchens Iraq with the big holes in it and the, uh, and the destroyed society and the lack of electricity. And it just doesn't actually carry very much weight in the serious argument. As for this claim that there is no evidence of the existence of God, of course there's evidence. Uh, the evidence, of course, is, is governed in any court by its admissibility. The thing about atheists is they refuse to admit uh, the the evidence which which theists would actually advance, as in the the, the we'll, 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 the we'll come to we'll the, earth is, the earth is crowned with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes, the rest sit round it and eat blackberries. If, if you are inclined to consider the possibility, and for goodness sake, Einstein considered the possibility of a theistic explanation, if you are inclined to consider the possibility, there's masses of evidence there. What there isn't is definitive proof. You're left on your own to decide. No dictator gives you the freedom to decide whether to obey him or not. Mm. That's an interesting point, um, Peter. Just quickly, one of the Peter Harris in this case, okay. um, one of the things that Peter Hitchens was saying there was that, in his view, both his brother and the atheists mm. who followed him were looking for this kind of hedonism that that gave them license to. Now, but you said you believe Christopher did have a strong moral code, which doesn't seem to fit quite with the description Peter Hitchens here is giving. Yeah, I don't think I'm the only person to say that. Um, I think Alistair McGrath has has detected that. He talks about the the moral backbone. Um, of Christopher Hitchens, um, I think John Lennox as well, um, and various other uh, opponents of him detected that. Moral in, in what sense? As in railing against I- immoral institutions and, and so on? I mean, he obviously wrote very mm. critically of, of yeah. ver- various types of government and church institutions. Well, I mean, I, mean I, I never had the chance to meet Christopher Hitchens, I've had a chance, obviously not. Um, but... Um, I think one of the things that his opponents picked up in him was was a real distaste for hypocrisy. And I think that that's one of the, the most serious lines of argument that he hands against the church. I'd be interesting, Peter Hitchens, do you, do you agree with Peter Harris on this point? We're all against hypocrisy except when we do it. And that's <laughs> public public <laughs> declarations of, of your goodness in terms of, gosh, I'm in favour of, of, of justice. And the old Tom Lehrer, now I'm against poverty, war and injustice, unlike the rest of you squares, uh, are nowadays quite rightly dismissed as virtue signalling. It doesn't mean anything okay. about the person to say that you're against bad things. Things. So what? I'm against bad things too, but it, it doesn't it doesn't right. give you any idea at all of what kind of person I am. Okay, let's uh, Ed d- want to include you as well before we go to a quick break. I mean, do you think that um, Christopher Hitchens had this sort of? What was he aiming at hedonism in the end? Um, this is the the view that uh, Peter Hitchens has put forward. That's why most atheists actually ultimately reject God. They don't they don't want to be ruled over. Well, I don't know whether hedonism is is the right word or, you know, puritanism is is the right word. I mean, certainly Christopher obviously liked his booze and fags and, you know, his sex and drugs and rock and roll. 
Um, but he, yeah, he was an exquisitely moral man. He was, um, you know, he was a feminist. He was um, an advocate of civil rights. He was an anti-racist. Um, he didn't just launch broadsides against religion. He launched broadsides against, um, you know, plenty of other people, including one of the, uh, the Democratic uh, presidential incumbents and her husband. Um, so I think, but I think this sort of boils down to, you know, the arguments of you know, the, the secularist atheist position of sexuality, you know, what whatever people get up to in their own homes, in the privacy of their own homes, as long as, you know, between two consenting adults, you know, that really shouldn't bother anyone else, and it certainly shouldn't bother the all-divine, all-knowing creator of the universe, if indeed she exists. Um, and, um, you know, I right. think that's what uh, he was, he was in favour of, uh, of freedom and he was in favour of sexual um, expression. And he, he, he criticised the, what it, you know, what he called the dangerous sexual repression of the Catholic Church, which was, you know, celibacy, um, you know, and then, um, you know, giving rise to, you know, what was essentially a global paedophile ring. Well, we'll 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 come back to you, and we'll come back to Peter Hitchens and indeed Peter Harris. So we're talking about Christopher Hitchens today on Unbelievable, remembering the world's favourite anti-theist and whether he was right about religion. Uh, we're really interesting uh, discussion today as we look at some of the ideas he propounded and uh, reflections from my guests Peter Harris, Ed Turner, and Peter Hitchens. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's programme. Uh, Unbelievable brings you conversations between Christians and non-Christians. We'll be back into our discussion about uh, Christopher Hitchens and his anti-theism in a moment's time. Later on, we'll be hearing some of your feedback as well. And if you'd like to get in touch, then a good way to do that is via email. That's unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Other ways to get in touch via Facebook, Twitter and so on uh, are on the website, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. And of course, links there to the newly announced Unbelievable the conference 2016 discover your inner evangelist is our theme but there'll be lots of other topics and seminars going on throughout the day for instance uh, how to show the resurrection is real help the internet just told me jesus didn't exist what about other faiths former atheists confessions 
what do I do with my doubts and reaching young people who have walked away. So uh, there's lots to look forward to if you're coming along to this year's Unbelievable The Conference 2016. Uh, go to premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable2016 to get the full details. So continuing our conversation today on Christopher Hitchens. Uh, over four years ago, he lost his battle with cancer, but he was, uh, especially towards the end of his life, one of the leading lights of the so-called New Atheist Movement, one of its most eloquent writers and speakers. And his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, became a bestseller around the world, around the same time as other books by Dawkins and Harris and so on. Uh, the God Delusion, Letter to a Christian Nation, were also becoming popular. And we're talking about his legacy today. Uh, Peter Harris, a Christian currently researching a PhD, on Hitchens' criticisms of religion is with me. Ed Turner is in studio as well. He's a lawyer and atheist blogger who was very much um, influenced by the anti-theism of Christopher Hitchens. And Peter Hitchens, brother of Christopher, joins us by phone as well. He, of course, sharing a very different perspective on faith to his late brother. Um, we wanted to, I wanted to talk about one of the, the, the things that um, Hitchens wrote down in God is Not Great. And, and he kind of summarised three conclusions about religions by saying this. The first is that religion and the churches are manufactured. The second is that ethics and faith are quite independent of faith and cannot be derived from it. And the third is that religion is, because it claims a special divine exemption for its practices and beliefs, not just amoral, but immoral. Um, and, and these, in a sense, could be summed up as three significant key arguments in the, the, the new atheism in many ways. Um, religion is manufactured, ethics and faith are independent of faith, and uh, religion is immoral because of the way it claims divine exceptions for its practices. Um, what, what do you say to the first one, Peter Harris, that religion is manufactured? That was sort of something he sort of assumed, really, from the outset, that, that these uh, the churches and religion are, are, have been made up, essentially. Well, there are a number of things that I, you know, I, I could say in response to that. I think it's based very much upon the, the views presented by people like Feuerbach and Freud that, that religion is actually some sort of psychological wish thinking. So, for example, in the case of Freud, the idea is that um, God is some sort of super daddy in the sky, which, of course, is, is a great fantasy maybe of lots of human beings, the idea that everything will turn out in the end OK if this God actually does exist. Um, I think I'd have to put the question back to people who say this and ask, well, um, obviously atheists would see atheism as a human construct because, of course, there is no God to construct their atheism for them if there is such a God. Um, but the other question is, to what extent is atheism a psychological compensation as well? So it, it cuts both ways, It does cut is what both you're ways, saying. certainly. Mm. Um, the chapter where um, Christopher Hitchens discusses this is a chapter where he, he picks three religions as evidence of, of human construction. Uh, uh, and, and at the risk of patronising everyone, I'll, I'll list them. The, the cargo cult of the Polynesians, the what he calls the evangelical hucksterism that the film Marjo exposes, uh, people asking um, for money in return for, for healing, um, and Mormonism. Now... This whole area of the origins of religion is actually a highly specialised um, area. Um, there's a vast literature on it. I mean, my argument would be I don't think you can look at those religions and necessarily say that they are human constructs. You actually, also ha you actually have to have come to the conclusion that there is no God, first of all, in order to be able to say that they are human constructs, because for all we know, there may be a God in this universe who does inspire Mormonism, mm. cargo cults, and evangelical hucksterism. I don't think there is, but that is, a, that is indeed a logical 
um, logical argument. Um, and of course, I would want him in the chapter to actually explain how he could extrapolate to all religions mm. from just the three that he chooses, why he chooses those three religions. Um, I think it's a, an area, I think it's again a, a chapter that exposes where he actually exposes without in meaning to the limitations to his own scholarship. And I suppose it could be argued not all religions have the same claim to veracity as each other. So comparing a cargo cult mm. with the historical claims of Christianity, yes. you're, you're not comparing the same sort of thing. No. But, I mean, even if you do take a pluralist view, uh, you run into problems because of his lack of scholarship. Um, and, uh, again, you know, I think it's a reflection of how this text tries to be quite a few things. Do you, do you think, Ed, that, that Christopher Hitchens dealt adequately with the, the claims of religions like Christianity uh, when he said ultimately it all boils down to wishful thinking and sort of yeah these Freudian uh, impulses we have to to have a sky daddy and so on well yes um, Peter Harris has just sort of waved off uh, that very important chapter in God is not grace on how religions begin by, you know, rather disappointingly waving the old canard, saying lack of scholarship, you know, there's no comparison between the Mormons and, uh, you know, and Joseph, uh, Joseph Smith and, you know, the historical claims of Jesus. Well, it just seems to me that we simply don't have enough evidence um, because of the passage of time. You know, we don't have television documentaries in the case of cargo cults and historical records and, you know, people within living memory to um, to show what exactly happens. Now, um, Richard Dawkins discusses cargo cults in The God Delusion, and he very cleverly references uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian, where, you know, Brian falls out of a window, assumes, you know, for two seconds, assumes the role of a preacher, you know, and John Cleese and everyone else, because he's, he's abandoned his sandal, are suddenly, um, you know, the whole of Jerusalem follows him, proclaiming to be um, the Messiah. Now, you know, I I don't think, you know, that that is a million miles away from what's actually happened. I mean, if people, you know, can believe that, you know, allied forces bringing supplies and creating runways on an island are, um, you know, is, is, is the result of you know, divine intervention. And it didn't just happen on one island, it happened on many islands. Mm. I mean, it's uh, the New Hebrides, the island of Tana, is the one that's usually cited. Uh, but it actually happened independently. Um, that there's obviously something, uh, that, you know, that, that this was obviously a religious so you, 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 and, you think there's yeah. a sort of a, a, a religious gullibility? Yeah, yeah exactly. Sort of yeah. And people who, you know, people. people like Marjo Gortner, who, um, you know, and I've seen his documentary where he came back, he was a child preacher. Um, and I've seen the documentary where he came back a few years later and he just admitted on camera, look, this is, these are all my tricks. This, this is how I work the crowd. You know, I, he, he had a walk on stage that he based on Mick Jagger. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and people still, um, you know, and, and people will still believe it. Yes. Um, so I can't remember his name now. There was a guy that um, uh, James Randi exposed on, you know, The Tonight Show or Saturday Night Live. So, some of these, some of these people claiming yeah, he- yeah, healing yeah. And, and so on and, who, who okay, have been exposed. Okay, he was bankrupted for about 10 years, but then he came back and yeah, he was doing I think exactly the same thing. You're thinking of Peter Popper, I think, is the uh, yeah. pop-off. In, yeah. um, uh, Peter Hitchens, while well, well, we've still got you, um, what, what's your take on, on uh, your brother's, your late brother's uh, view of religion essentially being uh, wishful thinking in that sense? Well, so is, so is a lot of secular utopianism of wishful thinking. One needs only study the huge swooning multitudes of, of intellectuals and artistic persons who were completely taken in uh, by the Soviet 
the Union during the years when, in fact, a huge amount of evidence of its murderous dictatorial nature was already available, uh, and who believed you only need to read the, the uh, Beatrice and Sidney Webb's ridiculous book, which is still luckily available about the, the new civilization of the Soviet Empire, the final proofs of which were being signed off as Stalin made his pact with Hitler, to see just how gullible secularists can be. It's the same argument as you can make over the, the, the complaints against the Catholic Church of child sex abuse. Indeed, the Catholic Church has had problems with child sex abuse and uh, has not handled them very well, but very large numbers of secular organizations, including children's homes uh, and the BBC, have also had problems with sex abuse and haven't handled them very well either. The church doesn't mandate sex abuse any more than the BBC or children's homes, but it happens, and it's a problem of human wrongdoing. People who want to argue about the badness or goodness of religion really need to do better than these pathetic cliches. Uh, so gullibility is by no means confined to religious believers and can be found in, in, in highly intellectual secularists uh, all the time. Uh, it, it, in my lifetime, the, the Soviet apologists tended to fade away, but there were plenty in the 1960s of apologists for Mao Zedong, probably the biggest mass murderer ever to stalk the earth. And subsequently, there have been, of course, various regimes in, in Central America which have attracted the same thing. And to this day, uh, the ghastly regime in Cuba has many, many sympathizers among very intelligent, well-read secularists in the West who, who, who completely blind themselves mm. to, it, to the way that it murders people, uh, tortures people, and, uh, and, and indeed is extremely, has been for many years extremely unpleasant to homosexuals. It's extraordinary what people can persuade themselves to believe if they want to, and it's nothing to do with religion. It's to do with human gullibility. Yes. And, it, it, and this is the, it, it, man is not great, would seem to me to be the, the starting point that we need to work from. Yes, rather than God, God being not great, it's, it's our own. It's it's within us. What's well, your response? Really, these, not argue, these things are not arguments against religion. Yes, religions are full of of, of faulty and, and and bad and inadequate people, and uh, because they are people, and because people are faulty, bad, and inadequate, doesn't mean that the idea of religious truth is itself discredited by this. Yes. Um, Ed, you wanted to respond to that. Yeah, your point about a lot of Western academic intellectuals being sucked in by Stalinism. And yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, you know, Bertrand Russell um, was one of them. Um, I think H.L. Mencken even wrote a you know, fawning review of, uh, of Mein Kampf. Uh, but a lot of these people actually, once they were presented with the evidence, they actually admitted that they were wrong. I mean, your, your late brother himself... Um, admitted that he had to abandon Mark Marxism because it was just not a you know a philosophy that, that, that worked. What would that's actually? Not, that's not actually accurate. First of all, Bertrand Russell should be excused from this. He was one of the earliest to see through Lenin and to realise what a menace Lenin was. Mm -hmm. uh, numbers of others were not so quick. Uh, but my brother remained to the end of his life uh, an admirer of Leon Trotsky. Uh, who, had he beaten Stalin for the for the leadership of the Soviet Union, would have proved, if, if not as as great a mass murderer as Stalin, certainly a comparable one, uh, because he, because of his morals, which were which, which were those of of utopianism, and he believed that any sacrifice of life was justified for the end in which he believed, and he he behaved in this way when he had the power to do so. So I think it's it's, it's idle to say that my brother turned his back on this. The other thing is that, sure, you say when evidence emerged, uh, but actually evidence was available. The first reports of the, of the gulags and of the Solovetsky uh, prison camps and of the murders of priests and, and, and others and the terrible horrors of the Civil War had emerged from the Soviet Union uh, in the early 1920s. And these fellow travelers who, who swooned at it and said that it was a new civilization continued to say so for many, many years after it was well known that it was not so. 
And I, I, I don't accept that defense at all. They, they blinded themselves to known facts over and over and over again. And, and Robert Conquest's book, The Great Terror, which is now praised by everybody, oh, what a great book it is. At the time it was published, and for many years afterwards, was, dis- was dismissed uh, in respectable academic circles uh, by people who continued to make apologies for the Soviet Union and, and to admire academics such as uh, Eric Hobsbawm, who continued to defend the Soviet experiment. No, I, I don't buy that, I'm afraid. Ethics and faith are quite independent of faith, was the second claim that I mentioned from uh, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, He was well known for this phrase, and perhaps you'd like to comment on it, Peter Harris. Um, I challenge you to find one good or noble thing which cannot be accomplished without religion. The point being, religion simply has no purchase on our ability to do good deeds. In fact, you can't find a good deed that couldn't be equally uh, carried out by someone without any kind of religious faith. What's your take on this, Peter Harris? Well, my response has often been that um, Christians are not saying, or religion, well, I don't know about other religions, I'm not here to apologise for them, but uh, other Christians actually have never said that you can't be moral if you don't have a belief in God. Um, Obviously, you know, the evidence of our own eyes, our interactions with atheists and secularists and so on. And there's biblical warrant for this, the very famous Romans 2, 14 to 15, that talks about people keeping the law of God without actually knowing the law of God mm. because of the dictates of their conscience. So the, the epistemic um, problem is, is not there. Um, people know what is right and wrong, I think, generally. Um, I think the bigger problem is when you try to provide an objective foundation for your ethics as an atheist or a materialist, naturalist, or so on. Um, and Christopher Hitchens often sort of spoke in tones of voice that suggests that he believed objectively in morality, that there are moral facts in this universe. Um, Did he ever address this, what is often a key argument for theism, the idea that mm. there is a moral lawgiver, that's the only way to justify okay. the Maybe. idea of objective moral beliefs, va- values, duties and so on? Did, did he ever address that argument specifically? Yes. I mean, he he actually uses an essay by a philosopher called Elizabeth Anderson in his book, The Portrait, the, sorry, The Portable Atheist, um, which talks about how um, through an evolutionary process, certain traits have arisen in humanity, which we also therefore call good. Um, and so he, he provides an evolutionary origin for uh, morality, but there are many problems with that. Um, Stephen Jay Gould, for instance, has said that if you rerun evolution, you might actually end up with a very different type of being. Mm. Um, So, for example, if we had, I don't know, um, evolved to be a lot more physically impressive than we are, um, we might not be as sociable as we are because our sociability as a species is Mm. our defence against predators take us on our own we're pretty pathetic physically put us into large groups and we're very formidable particularly our capacity to make weapons so if we let's say had become more like tigers we had a tigerish morality um, altruism and sharing and sociability would have been a lot less important in our ethics so what you therefore have on the basis of evolution are contingent ethics yes not not these um objective type of ones absolutely um, ed any commentary on this do you do you think um Christopher Hitchens did believe in some sort of uh, objective morality or was he in the end really just about the advantages that certain evolutionary uh, traits have brought to us? I think this was one of his arguments that wasn't really made out as well as it could have been philosophically. He has a chapter in his book, Does Religion Make People Behave Better? And he discusses everyone from Martin Luther King to Gandhi uh, to Evelyn Waugh. 
and um, he takes it from it's it's more of an uh, an observable trait. So for, for Evelyn Wall said, you know, just think how bad I would be if I wasn't a Catholic. And um, Hitch comes back with, well, think of the awful things that Wall said, you know, when he, he uh, because as a direct result of being a Catholic, um, you know, praising Mussolini's invasion of, uh, of Ethiopia and uh, telling a, a divorcee friend on the eve of her second marriage that she was only increasing the agony of uh, on the cross. Um, and I, d- I don't think he ever really discussed a, a, as to whether, you know, sort of from the William Lane Craig perspective as to whether... Um, morals exist outside of human behavior so but i think he he certainly he, he obviously I think didn't he probably, believe i think he probably did believe in objective morality he just didn't make the argument right. out as well as he could have done i, I mean I this this famous phrase of his of, of ch- i challenge you to find one good yeah. or noble thing which cannot be accomplished without religion yeah do, do you He's, agree with well him? yeah i mean i i agree with his i mean no one ever beat his challenge um it really answered his his challenge uh, very well. Uh, they came up with um, uh, sort of rather silly examples, like um, you know, a, a, you know, a Jewish soldier jumping on a hand grenade and uh, pra- praising God, uh, you know, in order to okay. save his com- comrades. But yeah. a Muslim could have done that, saying sure. "Allahu Akbar." And, well, uh, well let, let's bring in Peter Hitchens. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I, he answered this conundrum in my presence. Go ahead. A discussion in Washington <laughs> D.C. Um, after he'd fallen. Ill. He said that he had, after serious thought, come up with at least one action, which could only have good action, which could only have been done by a religious person. And this was Lech Wałęsa's leading of the solidarity strike against the uh, communist regime in Poland. He didn't think that anybody who hadn't, who, who didn't fear God as Wałęsa did, could conceivably have stood up against the forces which he did. Uh, so he did, in fact, in the end, answer his own question. Though no one <laughs> That's else very interesting. Uh, and I was there when he did it. Um, on the question of, of, of absolute morality, he didn't, as so many atheists don't, he didn't understand the question uh, because he, he, he simply couldn't, uh, couldn't fathom the point that, uh, that when he said that such and such a thing was moral, he was calling on a religious definition of morality, an absolute religious definition of morality, while refusing to acknowledge its origin. Uh, and I find this over and over again with atheists. They simply don't get it, and it goes past them. And when I, when I, try, I remember him saying, when it was put in, that went straight past my bat. He simply couldn't grasp it. This, the free rider aspect of atheism, where atheists say that we, often atheists are very, very uh, confident and, and indeed self-praising about their own level, level of morality. Uh, but the morality to which they are referring is religiously-based Christian morality, which the, the origin of which has you know, cannot be disputed, and, but they judge themselves on the basis of this while saying they have no interest or no belief in the in, in the force which actually gives rise to it. The whole problem of the rule of law and why any force should be above naked power in society can only really be resolved if you bring into society the existence of a power above the human. And there isn't any other way of doing it. But as atheists are, are, are closed to this argument, they're closed to so many other things, because the whole process of atheist belief is, is a closing of the mind to the, the rather worrying possibility that we might not be alone. Peter Harris? Yeah, there's a very interesting line of argument from John Gray as well, um, going back to what Peter Hitchens was saying about the, the origins of morality. Um, John Gray um, refers to the new atheists as Christian heretics, um, 
partly because uh, they, they put themselves outside of nature. So, for example, we have Richard Dawkins talking about the evolutionary origins of morality. Um, and he's also aware that there are things encoded in humanity by evolution that are not nice. So, for example, Steven Pinker has suggested that the, the disposition to commit genocide is something that might be evolutionarily encoded in us. Um, so therefore there has to be some sort of arbiter or moral umpire between these different drives within humanity. Now, mm. in a sense, when you start saying that there is such a moral arbiter, if you call it conscience, whatever, then you're actually stepping outside of evolution and the natural world. And you're actually saying that humanity is quite special in the sense that we can resist our evolutionary impulses. Um, now, that's quite close to the notion of, of what Christians say, that human beings are special, that we are the pinnacle of creation, that we are made in the image of God. Um, so I, I find that very, very interesting indeed. Mm. Ed, um, how do you resolve the whole thing about morality and the fact that um, it is difficult, I think. Most, I think a lot of atheists would concede, despite some efforts to do it by people like Sam Harris and so on, to, to, to ground these moral beliefs, these, these almost... Uh, uh, innate beliefs that there really is a, a right and a wrong about certain things in in a universe where there's no no one to really call that uh, that distinction. Well, yeah, the entire evolutionary process. I mean, there was a time when you know there was um, a natural selection advantage to genocide and rape. I mean, where was the divine law? You know, a hundred thousand years ago, you know, Hitch's ninety eight thousand year gambits challenge. God waits around with his arms folded for ninety eight thousand years while we're you know, raping, killing each other, committing torture, genocide, doesn't do anything, and then decides to intervene, um, you know, in a particularly remote and backward part of the, of the Middle East, uh, you know, not in China where there's a bit of mathematics and uh, literature going on, um, but, uh, you know, in some uh, strip of uh, desert in, in the Middle East which doesn't even have any oil under it. Um, so the, I want to make that argument that actually the evolution, the, the development of evolutionary morality... Um, is is actually a strong argument against there being, you know, an absolutist moral lawgiver, and that but, morality is manual, uh, malleable. Um, as for our modern perception of morality, you know, we have, um, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I think Sam Harris has, has dealt with this much better in his in his book, The Moral Landscape. Um, you know that we know scientifically, you know, we know what is good and bad for hu for humans. We know what constitutes a healthy person. We know that it would not be a good idea to uh, put cholera in our water supply. Uh, we know enough about the human nervous system to, you know, to, to know that dousing someone in petrol and setting fire to them is going to be excruciatingly painful. Um, Does that provide enough to... I mean, <laughs> this is another huge can of worms to open, but Peter Harris, is that mm. enough to kind of ground a... A, a morality, just the scientific facts of what happens to the nervous system if you set it on fire? Well, I think scientists themselves have been rather reticent about saying this. Um, Richard Feynman, um, the uh, Nobel Prize winner for physics, said that science is very descriptive of the universe, but it doesn't tell you what you ought to do. I mean, it can provide you the information that will help you make the decision as to what to do, but it doesn't actually tell you in the ultimate scenario what to do. I mean, John Lennox uses the example of a boiling kettle. Now, science can tell you why water boils in a kettle, but it doesn't tell you whether you ought to pour it over someone's head. Um, Einstein. Well, I think it, I think it also... does. Uh, we we know science scientifically. We can say that 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 would be very very painful. Yes, I know. But uh, absolutely. But then, but I, some people <laughs> like pouring water yes. over people's heads, and would not would not be um, conducive to you know the flourishing of human but, life. But then you're you're well, surely you're introducing a, a moral. 
Yes, a moral I, I agree that there is, there is, by, by doing that. There, is, there is a certain, you know, philosophical gap that is jumped between... Um, well, I think is, it's is that, it's that it, well, that's exactly well, the well, philosophical that's, that's, gap that's that, 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 that Harris was, was, yeah, was criticised This is that morality is an infinite spectrum of grey areas. I mean, I've got a stack of cashew nuts in my bag. It may be a moral thing to do to give um, Peter Harris some cashew nuts. Let's say for the sake of argument, Justin, you are, <laughs> you know, you are allergic to nuts. And, you know, this is a of good da Vinci, da Vinci Code way of, of, of killing you. <laughs> and that would be, uh, um, you know, a completely immoral All I know thing. is I'm not taking any of those cashew nuts now. But um, uh, Peter, Peter Hitchin, and what, would you say that your brother was uh, at any level uh, an optimist when it came to science, as it were, giving us the answers and being able to, to nail down morality and, and give us a brighter future and so on? Well, I mean, there were flashes of this bizarre belief in, in some of the things he wrote. But like me, I think his, his education in the sciences and his knowledge of them was pretty slender. Uh, it, but it is, again, a way that the, the, of, of both Marxists and atheists are always very keen on, on going on and on about the triumphs of science and its, its ability to explain everything. It's, it's a sort of scientism and a substitute for the, um, for the cosmology which religion gives you, which many people grope for. But I don't think in his, in, in his hands it it meant very much. I never got the impression that he had any particular grasp of any of the sciences. Uh, we weren't really uh, made to learn uh, them particularly well when, when we were at school, and we, came, we often came out with a rather rigid and, 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 and ignorant view of what they were about. So, no, I, I don't take that very mm. seriously at all. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be back for some final thoughts from my three guests. It's been a really interesting discussion on uh, the world's favourite anti-theist, as I've been calling him, Christopher Hitchens. And was he right about religion? Uh, we'll be wrapping up today's programme in just a moment's time. This is Unbelievable, with me, your host, Justin Briley, through till four o'clock this Saturday afternoon. Hello and welcome back to Unbelievable. I'm Justin Briley and this is the third and final part of today's programme. Uh, I'll be here though uh, afterwards if you're listening between four and five to the profile. As part of Faith Explored, I'll be talking to Hugh Osgood. He's a, a church planter and uh, a man who's actually brought many black and white churches together over the years of his ministry. So that's between four and five this afternoon on Premier Christian Radio. Uh, next week on the programme, uh, well, we're still nailing down exactly what it will be, but we may be able to bring you a conversation on whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God. That's been in our um, news recently because of uh, the recent uh, dismissal of a tutor, a lecturer at um, Wheaton College, Illinois. And uh, so we'll be, we'll be trying to set up a show on that very soon, at least, uh, for the programme. And, of course, I, I want to also make you aware again of uh, Unbelievable the Conference 2016, and so uh, I'll be sharing a little bit more detail on that in a moment's time. Uh, the programme is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm the senior editor of that publication. We've also got a lively blog which often picks up on current affairs and issues. Uh, we had a, a very popular blog that went out last week on um, Christian TV presenter Dan Walker, uh, the new face of BBC Breakfast, and uh, some of the uh, criticism of him in the press for apparently holding creationist beliefs. Well, um, David Robertson, who's a, a regular commentator on the blog and on this programme, wrote a, a really interesting article responding to that and uh, and that was viewed by a lot of people. One of our biggest articles uh, all, of all time really actually on the premier christianity blog but one that uh, you may 
be interested in as well, if you're a listener to Unbelievable, is uh, the recent one by Heather Tomlinson. And I'll, I'll read out some of that blog a little later, giving 10 reasons why Christians should give thanks for Richard Dawkins, who hasn't been very well recently. So um, uh, I'll, I'll read you a little bit of what Heather had to say on the blog recently soon as well. Uh, but if you want to um, get yourself a free sample copy of the magazine, find out what you've been missing if you're not a subscriber. Uh, premierchristianity.com slash free sample is the place to go. Uh, right now, let's finish up our conversation about Christopher Hitchens. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Well, it's been a really interesting discussion on Christopher Hitchens. Was he right about religion? And uh, he was, uh, if you like, the, the cream of the crop when it came to the new atheist movement. Uh, he shone very brightly within that sphere. Uh, his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, uh, was uh, brought widely in the North American market and elsewhere besides. It's influenced people like my guest Ed Turner, who's an atheist blogger. It's been responded to by many people like Peter Harris, who's been here, uh, telling us about a little bit about some of the things he's talking about in his PhD when it comes to this this issue. And uh, Peter Hitchens has been here as well uh, by phone uh, to reflect on his late brother's views on faith and religion and so on. Um, Peter, uh, this may be a somewhat personal question, but did you ever feel like your brother had any kind of um, softening towards religion at any level in the latter stages of his life? I didn't. I've come across people who do. Uh, but I didn't, and, and in the, I th- what I think you have to understand is that he always remained interested. Uh, he would I th- he would argue with quite um, pleasantly and, mm. and in a civil fashion with religiously minded people uh, right up to the end, uh, because that was what he was like and what he preferred to do. But I don't I th- I don't think beyond that there was there was anything to, to suggest any softening at all no and i think it would be silly of me to, to to claim it because it would it would be annoying to his memory because he was very insistent so if if, if anybody catches me on my deathbed saying <laughs> i've converted then that to, to us or, or anybody claiming that i have then let would dismiss it as a lie he was very determined not yes, to do that so indeed. No, i don't think so um, I, I remember one interesting quote, though. Um, he was involved in a documentary that was filmed in a number of debates he had with an American pastor called Doug Wilson in a, in a documentary called Collision. And, and yes, um, at yes, one I point, that. I think he was uh, asked, um, you know, would you like to see in the end all religion banished from the face of the earth for, for everyone to, to dismiss religion? And uh, and I think he, his answer was something along the lines of, no, I wouldn't actually. And when asked why, he said, because life's much more interesting when you've got people to disagree with. Uh, I mean, would that sort of sum up the way he, his ultimate view towards religion? Oh, Peter? there was a bit more to it than that. I wish I had to hand um, a, a little recording which, which deals with that. I, had, I didn't come really prepared enough for this. Uh, a bit more than that, but, um, as you would find in, in Thomas Hardy, who was surprisingly sympathetic to religious claims, given uh, particularly Jude the Obscure, mm. uh, and, and didn't and wasn't as dismissive of them as people thought he was. It's the problem with being, as it were, the sort of leader of a movement. Uh, your supporters often uh, often are more militant than you and require you to be. <laughs> it would seem to me that any open-minded person has to concede. Uh, I, I think that the, the the subtitle of his book, Religion Poisons Everything, was, was, was a mistake, and I suspect he... Uh, it claimed really too much in he, that he sense. Didn't really, yeah. he, 
didn't really believe that uh, because of the, the huge, particularly cultural and poetic contribution that, that uh, the Christian religion in particular has made to civilization. I think he was, he was more open-minded than his more fanatical supporters would like him to be, but I don't think that means that he ever softened towards religion. No, sure. It's been great having you on the programme today, Peter. Thank you very much My for, for taking you. some time to be with us. Um, Ed, um, do you think that uh, Christopher Hitchens' legacy will continue to inspire new generations of atheists? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, as he said, that there was nothing new about the new atheism. It was just the most recent. Um, none of the arguments in favour of God are new, and therefore none of the arguments against God are new. He put a new spin on it, and um, you know, I've I've uh, debated a few people on the show who've spat blood at this suggestion. But for, before I read the God Delusion, I was. Uh, an agnostic i was afraid to criticize religion if people brought faith into the conversation um then that was it that was argument over um but books like uh, the god delusion and god is not great gave me the confidence to actually have the argument and not be worried about offending people you know we we don't respect people's beliefs in any other sphere you know we don't we we scrutinize people's political views you know we do not respect the views of holocaust deniers and and anti-semites and um, I think uh, Christopher Hitchens and uh, the other four horsemen and their followers will continue to, um, you know, yes, inspire. They, they... Give, a, give a voice to the people, you know, the silent, uh, I don't know, silent minority, silent majority. I, I don't know. I'm not so silent anymore. <laughs> not I so mean, silent the, anymore, yeah, the, exactly. The, yeah. That, that, in a sense, uh, they were perhaps riding the crest of a wave of people kind of, uh, in a way, developing a very strident um, criticism of religion um, not that that hasn't existed before but perhaps in, in a more public setting um, yes uh, final thoughts from you as well Peter Harris on, on all of this well I think the, the Christopher Hitchens project doesn't really get off the ground because I don't think he ever really addressed the criticisms of materialism which is the worldview that founds his, his beliefs um, I think he's a bit of a victim of his own book's title um, because if you say all well, religion is poisonous you're making a universal proposition and the only thing you need to do to disprove a universal proposition is to find one exception mm. um, and there are many exceptions um, I, I find the errors in his work a problem, um, particularly his chapter where he looks at science and religion and just considers their relationship as an adversarial one um, if you look at the, the works of historians of science like John Hedley Brook uh, you'll see actually there's a whole range of relationships between science and religion um, the error where he says that Jesus does not exist um, one of his own mentors in this, Bart Ehrman, whom he erroneously calls Barton Ehrman, um, actually says no serious New Testament scholar disbelieves in the existence of Jesus, and Bart Ehrman is himself a sceptic. Um, but having said all of that, one thing I will say in his favour is that he's not a scientific person. He never believed that science was the only way you can understand reality. Hmm. He said when it comes to morals and values, you really ought to go towards literature. Right. Um, and I have a lot of sympathy for that because I teach literature. But unfortunately, some people in the list of writers that he advocates us going to were Christian writers. So I don't know how to uh, to square that one. <laughs> he squared that one off. <laughs> yes, um, he remains a fascinating character and 
well beyond his death as well. Um, so uh, it's been great to be able to talk about Hitch and uh, his anti-theism today on the programme. If you've got a thought on this, then I'll be making sure to give you the ways to get in touch with the programme as well in a moment's time. I'll make sure there are links to all of my guests, Peter Hitchens, Peter Harris and Ed Turner, on the show page. If you want to find out more about today's programme, share it with others and links to my guests. That's at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. For the moment, thank you very much. Thank you. Peter, Peter and Ed. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, if you'd like to get in touch with the programme today, can I encourage you to email unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Uh, you can also get in touch via Facebook and Twitter. Leave your comments that way at unbelievablejb or facebook.com slash unbelievablejb to follow along on Facebook. Uh, regular updates as well there. Um, things that I post from the Premier Christianity blog, from other websites, uh, news about the show and that kind of thing to keep you informed about what's going on. You can also leave comments underneath today's programme at the website itself, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. There's links there to uh, the Unbelievable Conference 2016. Glad to be able to open the ticketing as of today. And if you want to find out more about it, um, you can uh, click through and look at the various topics and speakers that we're going to be having at this year's conference. Going for a theme of evangelism this year, discover your inner evangelist. Bit of a fun uh, graphic, actually, that we've used for the conference this year. It's a, it's a, a, a man ripping open his... Um, his jacket, uh, Superman style, uh, with a, a letter E emblazoned underneath. Um, but uh, you don't have to be a superhero, in my view, to be an evangelist, to be an effective evangelist. And so we're going to be talking about natural evangelism. J. John, that's one of his specialities. And he's a, a well-known face on the UK evangelistic scene, a much-loved speaker, uh, and uh, is, is often involved in mission events and that kind of thing. He's going to be bringing decades of experience to the conference himself, and I know he's going to be a very popular speaker at the conference. Gary Habermas is bringing uh, his education and distinguished apologetic career to the fore as well. Uh, he's going to be joining us uh, to uh, talk about the resurrection and various other aspects of apologetics. Uh, Jeremiah J. Johnston of the Christian Thinkers Society, who partner with us this year for the conference, will be there. Uh, Tanya Walker, Ruth Jackson, Yemi Adeshina. Uh, we're going to have a, a youth apologetic strand or, or ways to reach young people. Um, so uh, Yemi and Ruth will both be involved in that particular strand. And there are more speakers to to yet be announced so um, look out for that on the page at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable 2016 you can get a sense of the prices um, some of the special offers um, you can get the uh, unbelievable conference dvd and cd that we produced last time for free if you book two or more tickets for instance and there's also an early bird rate too up to the 15th of april so uh, all, all available as i've mentioned at the website premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable 2016 uh this was fun by heather tomlinson on the um premier christianity blog in the last week she uh, wrote a piece on richard dawkins 10 reasons why christians should thank him uh, this was in light of the fact that he had uh, recently had a mini stroke um and uh, uh, we we heard that uh, the Church of England tweeted a prayer for him, and 
It was wrongly thought, in Heather's view, by some to be sarcastic, and there was a bit of a fuss about it. But Heather says, I see plenty of private expressions of concern and genuine warmth from my friends of faith too. Uh, Some atheists are saying we shouldn't pray for him, and perhaps he wouldn't want us to, but I think they underestimate how fond we are of the old fella. Of course, we're supposed to love our enemies, and you could argue Dawkins is such. His acerbic critiques of religion have got many backs up, including mine at times. But from what I know about the guy, I really like him, and I don't think I'm the only Christian who feels this. I also think that overall he's been good for the church. Here are some reasons why Christians should be thanking Richard Dawkins. Now, I won't uh, read all of the reasons out, but let me give a few of them at least. Firstly, Dawkins has encouraged committed Christians to think. Once upon a time, a common Christian response to questions like how can an all-powerful and all-loving God allow suffering and what about the slaughter passages was, well, you've just got to have faith. Well, that kind of theological flippancy is no more, by and large. Partly we can credit this to Dawkins because the amount of media coverage his ideas have received and the rise of militant atheism has meant that Christians have been inspired to think more about what they believe and why. Secondly, he's got everyone talking about religion again. It may be hard to remember, but before Dawkins' book The God Delusion, religion was a dirty word and hardly anyone discussed it in the public square. Now it's back on the agenda. Some people have become atheists as a result, but many have become Christians too, such as Peter Byram and Heather links to Peter's testimony. Uh, Thirdly, his intentions are good. Dawkins genuinely believes he's doing the right thing in battling religion. If you look at his reasoning, he cites atrocities such as 9-11 and extrapolates that religion is the cause of human misery. We don't agree with his reasoning regarding Christianity, but at least he cares about the human condition. We've just yet to persuade him that Jesus is the answer. And Heather goes on to list seven more. Perhaps you'd like to read them for yourself. Go to the blog, premierchristianity.com slash blog to read what Heather put down as the 10 reasons why Christians should give thanks for Richard Dawkins. Okay, uh, let's go to some of your um, emails that have come in about last week's programme. We were talking to Luke Griffiths Williams about his journey from being a Christian to a Jewish to atheist, and he was in conversation with Messianic Jew uh, Richard Harvey. Um, So uh, there was a a number of comments on the Facebook page when I um, put this up there. Um, This one from Dwayne Howard um, and Doug Nicole Hawksworth, both that didn't appreciate Richard's um, responses to Luke. Um, and uh, Dwayne says, ironically, Richard summed up the intellectual dishonesty and sheer willful ignorance that's required to believe that mythological fairy tales like Christianity are true. When he says in the 43rd minute of the podcast that at the end of the day, you have to doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. And uh, Doug Hogsworth says, all that I can say is unbelievable. This episode was a complete circus. What do you get when you pit an existentialist against a skeptic who has a bit of trouble articulating himself it was simply a list of reasons albeit weak ones in my opinion why it cannot be true countered by question begging this was a conversation bound for nowhere i'm sorry but i think it was quite insulting when richard basically accused luke of being naive and ignorant assuming rather than asking that he couldn't possibly have heard all the right arguments read this as the ones he accepts simply because he wasn't coming to the same conclusions that he did it couldn't possibly be that luke had actually heard and seriously considered all of those arguments and they were just wanting in the end i had wished that luke would have riffled back that richard must have misunderstood those arguments since he found them inadequate uh thank you very much anyway obviously um uh, difference of opinion on whether how richard responded to that i i thought richard did some some interesting and good responses actually and the thing about at the end of the day you have to doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs i i think there's something in that in as much as i think we all come to a point where you know for any christian who's thought through the issues that some kind of doubts will remain and, and there has to be a point at which you say well 
I'm going to make a decision now. I'm not going to remain agnostic. Um, I'm going to decide to, yeah, in that sense, doubt my doubts and believe my beliefs. Uh, obviously, it depends on how great your doubts are and, and, and how strong your beliefs are in, in that sense. But uh, I think there's something uh, to, to, to what uh, Richard had to say there. I, I'm not, I don't dismiss it as quickly as you do, Dwayne. Um, ben um, on the Facebook page says, Luke, I'm not sure if you'll see this, but I encourage you to read Lucy Pepiat's recent book, Women and Worship at Corinth. Now, this comes in relation to the discussion that he had with Richard on the issue of uh, wearing veils and head coverings that came up in the programme. And you say that Lucy Pepiat makes a fascinating and I think compelling argument that Paul is in fact arguing against women in the Corinthian church being made to wear head coverings. She makes the case that Paul quotes some men from the Corinthian church who were trying to make women wear head coverings and then refutes their argument, ending with, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What if the practice Paul is referring to is that of women wearing head coverings during worship? Um, Many scholars who have written on 1 Corinthians say that this passage is one of the most perplexing in the Bible. You're in good company. Uh, Thank you very much, Ben. Um, And uh, here were a couple that came in on email in response to that particular programme. Um, This was David who said uh, the discussion seemed to conflate the alleged deity of Jesus with his alleged messiahship, which are two very different things. Luke gave his reasons for disbelieving in Jesus' deity, but these were not examined, and it morphed quickly into a discussion of his messiahship, as if the two are the same issue. In fact, Jesus can be the messiah without being God, whatever that means, and Luke laid bare some of the incoherence in God becoming a man while remaining somehow God. Furthermore, Jewish objections to Christianity, because they reject Jesus as Messiah, are quite different from their objections to God becoming a man. A pity the programme didn't seem to explore these types of objections and the differences between them. And uh, Jonathan Mitchell, PhD at uh, the uh, Stephen F. Austin State University, says, In the most recent episode, your atheist guest, Luke, at one point seemed to suggest that religious morality lagged behind what I presume to be humanistic morality. He mentioned examples like homosexual marriage, females as clergy, and I think even slavery. I'm no historian, but I was under the impression Christians were some of the most influential leaders in many social and moral issues. Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement in America, Wilberforce for the abolition of the slave trade. Even the unjust treatment of women has been condemned by many Christians. I can't help but note that the gospel writers were, despite cultural pushback, honest in their recounting of the women being the first to see the empty tomb. Not a great way to fabricate a resurrection. I don't suppose Luke would consider abortion immoral, which brings me to my main point, Justin. Have you considered having a debate about when life begins in the womb? Perhaps you've hosted such a discussion already, and I do need to comb through the archives. I will do. In the meantime, perhaps Scott Klusendorf, author of The Case for Life, versus David Boonin, author of A Defense of Abortion. Christians are leading the charge against the immoral yet quite legal poisoning, dismemberment, vacuum suctioning, etc. of an entire class of individuals, each of whom deserve the same rights to live that autonomous adults afford themselves. I do not support violence against abortion doctors, as some Christians have in the past, but the call to support or at least recognize that Imago Dei in all humans necessitates we open the casket and discuss such issues despite the gruesome details love your show can't always listen in time to email but i did this week thank you very much jonathan yes we have um as you rightly guessed had a number of shows dealing with abortion and you can comb through the archives to find them um and yes we've talked to some extent about the issue of, of when life begins um scott Klusendorf has been a guest a couple of times 
in those discussions. And uh, so I think you'll probably find them quite instructive. That's not to say we won't do another one uh, at some point down the line. Obviously, we haven't done one since the whole Planned Parenthood thing happened out in the States. Uh, Thanks for emailing in. Uh, Maybe time for one more. Jeremy Behrman um, listens from South Africa and uh, says, Your unbelievable show is incredible, Justin. I was supposed to make a contribution in writing about how I lost my faith as a consequence of long-term ill health, but I was too ill for several months to even compose anything. I have had a long Jewish upbringing, but after developing ME, which has had a devastating impact on my quality of life, I found it progressively harder to believe in God. I see my atheism as a great achievement. Having to suffer so much in life, a person would normally have loved to go to heaven and enjoy eternal bliss. And ultimately, in our worldview, there is no overarching meaning to life to comfort and reassure. Atheism offers none of the psychological comforts of religion. I know Professor Dawkins is extreme, but he made some good points. Faith is not a virtue. Religion teaches us to be satisfied with not knowing. The universe does not owe us a purpose and we shouldn't have such an unwarranted confidence in our own importance in a cosmic sense. Uh, Dawkins also contends there's often no rhyme or reason as to whether we're hit by terrible misfortune and possibly destroyed or alternatively have a relatively carefree existence. It makes me better knowing that there is no good reason for my suffering. But I know that not all Christians share this view. Thinking that Jesus was suffering along with me and that God has a special plan for me is actually unappealing to me. I've listened to about 24 of your shows in podcast form and you mentioned that you hope that the show will be illuminating and stimulate us to consider things. Um, Although you come across as very erudite and also very pleasant and congenial and in fact a terrific ambassador for Christianity, the discussions on your show have strengthened my atheist convictions considerably. Anyway, I thought I would write when I felt well enough. Your show is terrific and you're a phenomenal host. Most other audio shows or podcasts on the topic of religion are poorly produced and poorly presented. And that's Jeremy in Cape Town. Thank you, Jeremy, for getting in touch. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Uh, I'm glad you're, you're well enough, at least, to compose an email now. Um, as you say, different people have very different responses, I suppose, emotional and intellectual responses to the problem of suffering. Uh, and I can't claim to have ever been in the position you've obviously been in and the, and the great pain you've gone through. But uh, I know of many Christians who would say, having been through similar circumstances to you, that that having some kind of purpose to hold on to uh, in the big frame of things was was a lifeline to them, that uh, that did, did, uh, was the only way they could make sense of suffering and that, in a sense, getting rid of that sense of uh, an overarching purpose and narrative to life uh, in an atheistic framework would have um, would have made the suffering meaningless in some sense. Um, but I appreciate that's not the way you've experienced it. Thank you for listening. Anyway, Jeremy, hope you're uh, listening to this programme and can hear me read out your email. Just a reminder, uh, you can get hold of the details of the new Unbelievable the Conference coming up in July, July the 2nd, 2016, in central London. Uh, do check out the details at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. You can click through to the uh, to the ticketing page from there. I shall be back in a moment's time with the profile. My guest today is Hugh Osgood. Uh, for the moment, let me tell you what I'm hoping to bring you at this time next week. You're unbelievable. Hoping to bring you a conversation on whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God. There's been some controversy over in the States after uh, a lecturer at Wheaton College, Illinois, was dismissed for making that claim, and we'll be looking at it with a couple of guests as per usual. But for the moment, thank you for being with me on the programme that aims to get you thinking, and hopefully I'll see you at the same time next week. 